Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Shamrat Niyogi, co-founder and CEO of Miso, an internet startup that creates a mobile and web application allowing users to check into and share their television and movie-watching activities. Miso's long-term goal is to be what Shamrat refers to as the second screen while watching TV. Shamrat discusses starting Miso, why he thinks passion drives work ethic, and why any entrepreneur must love the hustle. And now we turn to Shamrat Niyogi, who's joining us today via Skype from San Francisco. Shamrat, we start with the same question we ask all our guests, which is, what was your first meaningful job and how would it influence your future career? My first job was in high school and I tutored math. Actually, I was underage getting money and that was awesome. I think I was 15. <laughs> I was uh, 15 years old. I don't think you can get paid back then, but when you're 15 years old, one of my friend's mom worked at a math and learning center called Kumon, K-U-M-O-N. I think it's still, it's like a national chain and Basically, I graded kids' math homework, and one was sort of this drilling, you know, young children get drilled to, to do math effectively, and since I was a math bum, I graded math, and I got paid like $5.15, and I was so excited because I got a bank account, and, you know, you learn a lot from just making money and, and learning how to, uh, the value of money, but uh, yeah, that was my first job. So let's jump ahead and uh, jump right into Miso. Tell us about Miso. What is it and how did the idea for the company come about? So Miso is a sort of second screen experience that people use while they watch TV that makes the TV watching experience better. Right now, we have a vision of a future where people are using their mobile device or their tablet or their laptop while they watch TV where you can engage, you can get interesting information that makes that TV watching experience better. Right now, the product allows you to sort of check into what you're watching, get points, you can unlock badges, you can comment, you can engage with other people, you can follow shows. You know, the future is a world where we believe everybody's going to have a second screen device. And while they're watching TV, they can use Miso, you know, they can get interesting information, they can engage with the show, whether you're watching American Idol and voting and doing stuff like that. That's the world of the future that we look at. How we founded Miso was actually after two failed product attempts. And you learn a lot from that. First, we created a Twitter client about nine months prior to launching Miso. Me and my co-founder, we created a Twitter client back when everybody was creating a Twitter client. And that was a stupid idea. Um, (laughs) Back then, this is where everybody was talking about the correlation between box office performance and how Twitter is affecting it. So we said, hey, how about we analyze people's tweets and explain which movies people are talking about the most. And so we launched an app called FlixUp, which is sort of a Rotten Tomatoes for Twitter. So this is where we entered the intersection of social and and entertainment. And we presented in TechCrunch Disrupt, and we were all excited about it. And there was some good press about our product, but it wasn't really taking off. It was more of a feature than anything else. So we launched an iPhone app for FlexUp, we launched an, a web version, and then January, literally a year ago, me and my co-founders, we just sat, we're like, okay, well, something's not right. You know, we have to either, we were running out of cash, we were kind of getting demotivated. So we said, hey, we got to really do something different. We really got to jump on an existing behavior that people were doing. And to be quite honest, so we were doing movie stuff back then. Yeah. So we were frustrated that people were checking into Foursquare 
and checking into movie theaters and they weren't telling what they were watching. Right. Like, I don't care that you're at AMC theaters. Like, what are you watching there? And so we also realized that when you create an application, you got to do something really simple. Look at the most successful social products today. Very simple things that people can grasp their head around. And so we said we have to do something very simple. We have to do it right. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll kill it. So we changed our development philosophy from rather doing something very long to something very short. So in two weeks, we developed our first version of Miso. Wow. Which was check-in to what you're watching in a movie theater. So only movies in a movie theater. And it was to Facebook. There was no stream. There was like horrible search. There was no liking, commenting. It didn't do any. I mean, you couldn't find friends. You couldn't do anything except post what you're watching in a movie theater back to Facebook and Twitter. And actually just to Facebook. And we started seeing a little bit of traction there. Like, wow, people are doing this. But you don't watch enough movies in a given month to remember that our app even exists. So we said, well, why don't we add more movies that are not in theater but also at home? So we added more movies. And then we added TV. And all of a sudden, we became a sort of a simple and fun way to share what you watch with your friends. And then we added points and rewards because people saying, why don't we just use Twitter and Facebook? And all of a sudden, you know, we learned a lot from that experience. But we had to uh, fail fundamentally before we got there. That's great. No, that's really interesting. You said something interesting with your previous product. It was more of a feature than a product. Can you talk about that distinction a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, and this is something that we learned through our failure. It's really hard to develop an application or business on someone else's platform. Because then all of a sudden you look at yourself as being a feature. So the idea of, so let's look at the, the way you decide what movie to go watch. And, you know, Sean, I know you have a lot of background in the space. Sure. But the way people decide what to watch is actually a very fragmented decision. You go, okay, it's five, 4 o'clock right now. What time is a movie? I wonder what's going out there. I wonder what my friends like. The way you decide what to go watch is actually so fragmented. But certain things are more important than others. So when is the movie? What time is the showtime? What's the trailer? So when we look at that decision-making process, people do make the thought of like, oh, I wonder what everybody else is thinking. You know, sometimes they go to Rotten Tomatoes, maybe they go to Box Office Mojo or whatever it is. You know, all of a sudden, Twitter became a part of that decision, but it wasn't the number one decision point, right? It wasn't like the reason why you go watch a movie. So that alone defines it as a feature. The feature to me is, is just a component of an overall solution. And so even if you look at our product today, you know, our product today, what is Miso in its current infancy, is checking into what you're watching. But to us, that's still a feature, but it was not built on someone else's platform. You don't rely on Twitter. You don't rely on Facebook. You build it on your own basis. That has been a key learning for us. So there's a lot of other things we learned why it didn't work. Like, it was too complicated. People wanted more trailers. People wanted to see the show times. And it's like, that's not what our product was. Right. It was a it sort of distilled and helped you understand what movies people are talking about. But people used it, and then they would jump and go somewhere else because it wasn't complete. It wasn't your solution. So maybe Fandango, maybe Flickster are doing things with you know putting tweets in there, and I'm sure that's something that's, that everybody's experimenting with. But once again, it's a feature. It's not a product. Right, right. So how did you come up with the name Miso? What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's funny you, you know when you sit in a room and you're like what should we call ourselves the way people even to this day it's always interesting how people come with product names but for us it was um we just wanted something short something that people can say 
you know, we had this lofty goal, which is, can we make miso a verb? Do people want to miso what they're watching? It's short and sweet. I mean, obviously we don't have miso.com, but maybe we'll be one day big enough to go buy it. But uh, yeah, short and sweet. People want short words. It's just easy. It's just easy to say. It's No one wants to type a long URL. It's just easy to remember. And it's not like we were having sushi and we're like, <laughs> uh, you know what would be amazing? A product name called Miso. No, I wish I wish that was the case. That, that, that would have been a better story. No, that's interesting. And especially the strategy to use it as a verb. We interviewed the uh, Koloft folks a while ago. They're very much about, you know, we're going Kolofting and things like that. So I think that helps a lot with social networking. No, it does. I mean, if you think about you know, did you face, you know, Facebook me to, did you Google this? You know, did you tweet this? Like, you know, it, it flows naturally. And so sometimes people put a lot of emphasis on the name. I and mean, at the end of the day, people forgive the name as long as the product is really good. So I think we're a little bit lucky here and that people love our product and whether the name is good or not. Um, there's some funny names out there and that people love. Sure. And I'm always like, okay, there you go. So, Shamrat, tell us a little bit about your background and, and your team at Miso. How big is the team and that kind of thing? My background, actually, prior to starting Miso, I worked for a company called socialmedia.com. It was a social ad network where we sold social ads to on publishers, and it was sort of a platform where other publishers can deliver social ads. And so I part, you know, was part of the partnership and business development team and sales team, sold social ads there for two years. Prior to that, I actually was in the world of enterprise software. Uh, I worked for Salesforce.com for three and a half years. Was there, you know, in the early days of part of their data services team, ran the data services team there, and then worked for another enterprise software company. So I definitely took a, a shift from enterprise software to consumer, and that kind of happened somewhere in between. Our team is awesome. We have a team of eight people. We're based in San Francisco. We have one person in New York. A little bit of everything, you know, it's a small team that does a lot of work. My co-founder, Timothy Lee, we went to school together at University of Texas at Austin. I studied CS, uh, he studied double E, and, you know, I went down a working for software path, and he went to Stanford and got his master's there and did all types of neat types of robotic stuff afterwards. And we came together about 18 months ago and said, let's go start something together. And then the rest of the team, we have mobile engineer, we have a web developer who does a lot of our platform. Both of the, our engineers are just incredible. One of them worked at Howcast, the other one developed a Rails framework called Padrino. And then we just have another group of rock stars that are doing marketing and, and biz dev out in New York. The hiring is the most important thing for us. And so, you know, you try to hire people that can do 10 jobs, which is tough to find people who enjoy doing that and are good at it. So you said you have a co-founder. Do you have two co-founders? or We had two co-founders. Okay. Um, and one of them actually just recently left. Uh, he, you know, he wanted to go try something different. So one of them, Tim Lee, the other one is Matt Pakes. Matt was one of our core engineers and actually just very recently, so we actually haven't even updated on the, on the webpage, recently decided to go explore his own paths. He was such an integral part of our team and was a key part of our success. And you know, sometimes you, know, you go down, it, you start things and People want to go try their own things, and, and sure. uh, that's where uh, Matt decided to make that move. So, you know, when you're starting the company and whatnot with your co-founders, how did you decide what roles that you would be in? What was that conversation like? You know, some of it's just sort of natural. What are you good at? What am I good at? What can I do? What can you do? How can we all make sure we all work together in, in an effective way? It's always interesting. There's the things that you want, and then there's the things that the company needs. And so 
you sometimes have to sacrifice what you want for what the company needs. And I think that sort of recognition is, an, is, is a key part to any success of a, of a startup team. So for us, all three of us have engineering backgrounds, me, Tim, and Matt. But Tim recognized that I was the most effective in terms of product strategy, in terms of business development, in terms of communicating our story and trying to raise financing. And he said, I will do the engineering. And even with an engineering between Tim and Matt, they came with different skill sets. As a matter of fact, all three of us, none of us created a consumer product before. And so Tim had to learn iOS development. He learned Rails on the job. Matt learned Rails sort of on the job and learned sort of about server infrastructure. So you just hire smart people that really want to just build cool things and that are very flexible in terms of just getting shit done. I think that's the most important thing is building a, a team of people that just can let go of their ego and really want to do the right thing to move the business forward. And I think that's more important than anything else. And because of our team, we are able to say, hey, I'm going to do biz dev sales and you know raising financing. You're going to run the mobile development and you're going to run back end. If there's any issues here, we can always just reshuffle. And there's always times when it's like, hey, you know, even with an engineers with Team Tim Matt, they would change their sort of work just to spice it up a little bit. But no matter what, we were always sacrificing sometimes what we wanted to do versus what was right for the company. I see. So what is the business model for me? So how do you make money or plan to make money? I mean, I know the ad market is tough in the entertainment space. Based on my experience with Box Office Mojo, I found it was had you know lower CPMs than than maybe other verticals. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So our model is actually quite simple if we can figure out how to do this. The trend is actually that more and more people are using the internet while they watch TV. You might find yourself doing this while you're watching TV. You might have your mobile device on, your tablet, you know, you might be on your laptop. And so TV is based off of a single concept, which is attention. So it's a $74 billion TV ad business. But it turns out that nowadays more and more people are multitasking while they're watching TV. They're looking, watching TV, they're doing something on their laptop, they're doing something on their mobile device. So if we can recapture someone's attention while they watch TV, if we can build something that you can use while you watch TV that makes that TV watching experience better, then you could argue that the dollars should go back to the second screen or complement what is happening on TV. So if all of a sudden I'm watching the Today Show and I see a Tropicana ad on TV, I will see a Tropicana ad on the second screen and then it'll be something I can engage in. I can target you in new and interesting ways. If it says, I'm, you know, yesterday I was watching, you know, what a Parks and Recreations and there was a Toyota ad for the Highlander and it said, go to youtube.com slash Highlander or whatever it is, you know, maybe YouTube, YouTube video actually appears on the second screen. So to us is if we can show that people will engage on the second screen as it relates to what they're watching, then the TV advertising dollars will not, no longer just appear on TV, but they will appear on the second screen. Now, we have to do a lot to get there. We have to show that people will pay attention to the second screen. We'll have to show that people will pay attention to, to something that we're building versus checking email or texting. The market is huge. It's a $74 billion TV ad business. The trend is clearly moving to a direction where there's a multi-screen experience in the connected home. We just have to figure out what people want while they watch TV, and that's something we're very, very focused on. No, and I think that's a big competitive advantage in, ter- in terms of, you know, you actually know what they're watching when they're watching it. So you can tie that ad back to that person of a product that they've seen on TV or whatnot. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, plus we'll know who you are. 
will know your behavior, what you like, what you don't. I mean, there's so much that digital provides that TV advertiser has never, ever seen that they don't have access to. And so because of this, we can garner higher CPMs. And we believe that if we can show this, and we have not, we have not done any of this work to date, but if we can show that if I see an ad on TV and then I see an ad on the second screen, because that's reinforcing that message, that message I'm seeing on TV, will it increase brand lift slightly, even, even marginally? And if that's the case, then the TV advertiser will say, I will have to spend money on the second screen, or I'll reallocate dollars on, from TV to the second screen as well. So these are all sort of hypotheticals. We're a startup that can say these crazy things, but we have to grow and prove it out and try things and, and see if there is something here. Can you tell us how many users you have or you know, what your growth pattern is like? We have a, a little over 100,000 users right now. Mm-hmm. We deliver about an engagement, you know, which is a check-in or a comment or a like or something like that every four to five seconds. We have delivered over 2 million engagements to date. We are growing at a, at a couple hundred users a day, and all of that is done through organic means. We don't pay for any advertising. Great. That's terrific. So you said before that right now, I think, and I've used the product a little bit too, that it's focused a lot on the check-in. But to get to that sort of second screen experience, what does that mean in terms of how the product looks? Does that mean like chat rooms, chat rooms with your friends, things like that? Or can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I, I think there's a lot of unknowns in that question. The question that, you know, that you're asking is like, what do people want while they watch TV? And besides the most simplistic thing, which is and I would even argue, is, is, is that even something that people want, which is sharing the fact that they're watching it? You know, there's a lot of ideas that we have there. People love to share their opinion, so how can you make that opinion be more engaging while they're share, watching TV? So people can take polls when they're watching TV, or people can rate episodes, or people can also plan what they're planning to watch in the future. We also believe, you know, maybe there's quizzes that pop up in the right shows. I mean, depending on what you watch, you'd want a very different experience. You can imagine sports might be different than TV episodic content, which might be very different than news, where news might be less about engagement, but more about additional information about what I'm seeing on TV. So see that they're talking about disease on TV on the second screen, there'll be information about that disease, you know, what little WebMD definition or something like that. I see. So I think, you know, how can the second screen be used as a way to add value to your TV watching experience? This is a very broad challenge given that the content is so spread out and depending on what you watch, you want something very different. We just raised some money and part of that money is being used to explore what those potentials are and really figure out what the longer term value might look like. I see. How, how much of this is really hinged on the, the live TV experience? I mean, I know that's important with sports and whatnot, but a lot of people are time shifting with regular entertainment TV shows or they're streaming movies with Netflix or on DVD and whatnot. I think the future is moving in a direction where people want more control and convenience in the way that they watch their TV. So live TV is, you know, while sports is a, is a definitive category where that will always be important, but time-shifted TV is, is the wave of the future. The ability to stream things and watch things on Hulu Plus and, and so forth are all, you know, while it's not mass-adopted quite yet, and one could argue, but um, it's definitely moving in that direction. So for us, we still believe, and there's data to support this, is that the second screen is still there. You know, whether you're watching live or time-shifted TV, it doesn't really matter. You're still using a mobile device while you're watching. And so for us, it's how do we add value to your TV watching experience no matter when you're watching it? 
Yeah, because I, th- I think one of the things that, that I miss out on sometimes with a lot of the time-shifted stuff is that social aspect of it, and whether it's, you know, I'm chatting with a friend or something about a, something that I'm watching or whatnot, and it seems like Miso can really bring that, that experience back, even if I am time-shifting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, Dick Costolo and from Twitter has, has actually been talking a lot about the value of, of what Twitter is doing and, and what it's doing to for live TV. So I think there's something there. I think the challenge is, 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 is it something that you'll use so much that you'd come back every single day, you know, when you're watching TV? I think that's something that's yet to be determined. I mean, usually the quality of the commentary that appears on Twitter is not as substantial and as interesting. You know, it's people say not very interesting things, unfortunately. You know, and the, even the idea of chat, are people looking to chat when they're watching TV? Well, maybe for the right shows where there's lots of downtime. So the thing that we're focused on is, is around innovation. People look at the space and say, hey, you know, it's just about check-ins. And to us, it's like, no, it's not about check-ins. To us, it's about really understanding how the second screen can be used as a way to improve people's TV watching experience. And that's why we do what we do, is to really get to the root of that answer and really add value to the industry and say, hey, here's what, here's what it turns out. It turns out when people watch these type of shows, people want X. And when people watch these type of shows, they want Y. Chat might be a part of it. And in some cases, it might be quizzes. Sometimes it might be polls. Sometimes it might be information. Maybe social is the only thing people want. I don't think we know the answer, and I don't think anyone has the answer. I think that's something that we're very focused on is building out a team of innovative engineers and product folks that want to shape what that might look like. So who is your competition? I mean, do you, is there anybody out there you're competing with? Do you fear other entertainment properties like IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes or Flickster will sort of add the check-in concept and try to, to go after this market as well? I think our number one competitor is actually attention. We're talking about a concept of do people want to do things when they're watching TV as it relates to the TV show? The answer might be no. <laughs> you know? Right. The answer might be like, nope, I just want to check my email, and that's better than anything you'll ever, ever give me. And that's something that we have to be very mindful of. So, you know, we'll have to explore that and see, see where things go in, in, in the long run. But when it comes down to what are people doing when they're watching TV, they're doing things on Twitter. They're searching for things on Google. So we see them as sort of the big players that are really the de facto place to go to. And then ultimately, they end up might, might going to IMDb or Wikipedia when they're looking for answers or they're looking for photos, they might end up at TMZ. Ultimately, Google and is, is sort of the number one place to go to when people watch TV. Now, when it comes to the feature of a check-in, as you mentioned, IMDb may enter this space. Flickster will probably enter this space as well. It's just like when Yelp did it, right? It wasn't like their core competency, and it's not the reason why people use IMDb. IMDb is sort of a reference guide. Right. So it's not something that, that you go to think about when you, when you go to IMDb. It's not something you think about. So I think they, you know, they may try it and it might work, it might not work. I, I, I don't know. Flickster, same type of thing. It's a review site. It's, you know, now they buy Rod Tomatoes. It's even becoming more of a review site. It's not something that people think about when they go watch TV or a movie. So I don't know what's going to happen there. From where the press talks about us, they do reference the get clues and the Philo and there's a 30 other companies that are trying to do this as well. And our focus is hundred percent on TV. We have a very, very specific vision of what we're trying to accomplish and we'll see what happens in the long run. 
No, it's interesting because I, you know, I downloaded this a couple of weeks ago and have started playing with it. And, and I use, you know, Foursquare and Barcode Hero. We interviewed the CEO of that a while ago, and I've gotten kind of hooked on on this on this concept. And I found that I've actually used the Miso product more sort of as an afterthought in terms of like after I see something, then I'll go check and say that I that I saw it or whatnot. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about how customers are using the service now? What's in it for them? What are you learning about your customers and how they're using the product and that kind of stuff? People are using it in various different ways. I, I don't, to your point of the, how you've been using it, yeah. people we haven't really educated around what the strong use case is. But I would say about majority of people are actually using it when they're watching TV. It's sort of a you know the check-in is for, you know supposed to be sort of a state of mind. Like I'm here, I'm doing something right now, and I'm checking in to communicate that to the world. However, there are people that are doing it afterwards. Some people watch four hours of TV, and then they check in four times in a row. The reason why people are doing it is actually very depending on who you are. I mean, some people do it because they love to share what they watch. It's something they've been doing already, and they want to make that simpler. Some people are using it because they want to track their TV watching habits, and they want to see it, and they want to know what they're watching and what their favorite shows are and how often they're watching things. You know, it's some somewhat nerdy, but... Uh, <laughs> But that's something that people want to do. There's other folks that are in there for the reward components. You know, they want to collect badges. They want to get points. And it's always interesting to see that because the points don't mean anything in, in our in the ecosystem. It just means, hey, you're a bigger fan than I'm a bigger fan than you. But some people just want to communicate that to the world. And so everybody's using it in, in different ways. I think we're trying to figure out how do we deliver value to each of those different audiences or, or more importantly, is there a specific audience that represents the larger potential that, that we should be focusing on? So let's shift gears a little bit here. Uh, I think you mentioned that you raised some money for, for this company, for the startup. Can you talk about that? T- tell us about your process of raising money and, and that process. So we went through two types of raises. We raised a, a seed round in May of last year, so about seven, eight months ago, and then we raised our Series A with Google Ventures and, and Hearst Interactive about three or four weeks ago. Our seed round was compiled of various angel investors, Keith Raboy, who's the GM of Square and is a very active angel investor in the Valley, you know, Javed Kareem, co-founder of YouTube. We have George Herrick, one of the first 10 employees of Google, Naval Ravikant, who runs Venture Hacks and the venture hack ball um, and the angel list, um, which is is something that uh, most startups should take a look at. And then we have a bunch of ex Googlers that we have as well. We're very excited to have these great investors on on our side and on our team. They're extensions of our team from the way we look at it. And um, it was it's tough raising money is not an easy process. I'll just say that. Fair enough. What do some of these investors like bring to the table for you? Because I know a lot of times it's more than just about money. The money is is probably the least important thing about why you raise money and why you take money from specific folks. I think the most important thing is it comes down to the individuals that you work with. For us, I could talk about our angel investors and so forth. You know, you know, Keith Raboy is has been in, in an operating role at Square. He was an operating at Slide at PayPal at LinkedIn. You know, he's been in executive positions where the decisions have been made, and he can help process and distill that information in, in interesting ways. Javed Kareem, co-founder of YouTube, his whole story of how did YouTube come about and, and he's, a, he's an engineer, you know, so how did they think about product development and iteration and that whole process from start to finish? Having that advice 
at an early stage is paramount. Naval Ravikant, he founded eOpinions, and he's also invested in various startups, and he's seen things work and seen things not work and how to raise money and so forth. That's very valuable as well. In terms of our most recent rounds, Google Ventures actually invested us in a seed stage as well. And the way we think about Google Ventures comes down to an individual. So Joe Kraus is on our board, and Joe Kraus co-founded two companies. One was Excite, which was one of the hot companies in the late 90s when IPO and merged with At Home and so forth. And then he also started another company called JotSpot, which was bought by Google. And Joe has been in an operating position. He has been a CEO twice. He has successfully ran two companies. And to engage with someone at that level who can say, I understand this is a difficult decision. Here's how I would think about it. Because you don't get that advice from just any Joe Schmo who just gives you money. There's people who can give you money that don't give you real objective feedback. And Joe is just, he's a product guy. He's done, seen everything. He's raised money. He says, here's how you should pitch this. Here's how you should organize your team. That is more important than money. And then we look at Scott Wolfgang from Person Interactive. When you think about what we're doing as a business, it's, a, it's media. And you know, when you think of what is the oldest institutions that have tried things and seen things work and failed and have relationships, it's Hearst. So they've been around forever. They've done newspapers. They've done magazines. They're a part owner in, in ESPN. They're in, in Lifetime Networks and A&E. They're the Switzerland of the media business. They just dabble into various things. And opening doors and just helping us think about entertainment is important to us as well. So it, it comes down to people. And I would say about Google Ventures, what's interesting about them as well is that the way Google Ventures is set up is that they bring in people that help the portfolio companies. It's not like here's a bunch of finance folks who are M&A former bankers. Right. If you look at their team, they have peace partners like Braden Kovitz. He was a partner there, but he does design work. He designed Gmail. He designed Google Docs for him to come in and say, hey, here's how I think about designing your product. You don't get that. You have Michael Margolis, who's a user research guy for Google for several years, to help us understand how do you research the space? How do you understand what users want? How do you talk to them? How do you get, go deeper? You don't get that from just taking money. David Crane, 10 years plus at Google, doing all their PR. Imagine the relationships that he has having pitched Google. So you know, that's why we took the money that we did. And that's why we're excited to be having them as partners. And that's why I think they're extensions of our team because they are extensions of our team. No, that's uh, great. It sounds like that's a, a great asset to have. It absolutely is a great asset to have. Can you talk a little bit about being the CEO for me? So what special skills are required to be CEO? How did you know that you were ready for the position? I don't know if I'm ready for the position right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. I, I honestly don't know if, if I'm the best CEO for this job. You know, I think like at the end of the day, you, you, you wake up and you put your best foot forward and you think pragmatically about how do you add more value? How does this company grow and how do you bring good people in? I mean, at the end of the day, I have three jobs. I have one is to make sure we're all focused on a single vision and that vision is being communicated from top all the way to just anybody in our company and communicating that story to the world. That's something that I have to do. Second is I have to bring good people in to help us grow our business. And I think I briefly talked about with that with you earlier is just bringing good people that have the audacity and conviction 
that want to build something that we're all tied to, which is building a better TV watching experience, using these second screen devices to make that happen. And third is just making sure we have money, you know, you know, making sure that we can turn the lights on and we can make sure that people are getting paid and we're creating a great working environment. So those are the three things that I think about constantly is bringing good people and working with our team to realize the opportunity and then making sure that um, people are paid and, and doing things well. Are there a lot of people that can do this? There are tons of people that can do this. Sometimes you got to wake up in the morning and saying, is this what I want to do? And I'm super excited about what we're working on. I love it to death. I'm obsessed with it to the point that people think I'm crazy. And um, <laughs> I think that's what you want in a CEO is someone obsessed with the opportunity. And, and here I am. So hopefully uh, I'll get to continue doing this for, for, for quite some time. That's great. That's great. Well, we've already talked about money, but uh, in terms of vision and hiring, let's talk about hiring a little bit. How do you go about finding good people to work for you? What's your philosophy when it comes to hiring in that process? That's a tough one. I mean, that's something that we think about a lot. It's probably the most challenging thing that we go through is finding good people. Let's put it this way. We've hired and fired people within a week or two when they start. Wow. Uh, you got to make decisions fast, but you got to if they're not working out, you got to make decisions faster. And so that's something that we've we've realized and you know, we fired five people in in the last couple of months. So, I think the way we think about hiring is don't rush it. You got to make sure that everyone's interests are aligned. We have to be excited about them and they have to be excited about us. We'd rather hire someone who's excited that believes in our vision, that believes that's just like, think about this all day, more than someone who has the perfect resume for a skill set. Because passion drives work ethic and that energy you can't create. You just can't create. I'd rather interview someone that's challenging me, saying, I don't, I don't agree with what you're saying. Well, what do you think? And then having them debate with me and I'm like, this is the type of person that I want. Because they're looking to challenge the status quo. And so I think work ethic is really important to us. Passion is really important to us. You have to have a minimum sort of skill set to sort of be here. You have to be able to do five jobs. You've got to be able to roll up your sleeves and get shit done. Execution is, I would argue, is everything at an early stage. It's hard to find these people. And so that's why we take our time. And when we do, we, we think we have one. If they come in and they, they talk a big game and and then they don't execute, you're, you're gone. It's harsh, but it's important to make sure that you don't keep... Sure, that. especially in terms of you know, the idea of sticking to your, to your vision and whatnot, which leads me to my next question about that. Does your company have a core set of values? I know like t- Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, has talked a lot about that in his book, Delivering Happiness. What's your take on this? Does Miso have a, a, a corporate culture? We do have a corporate culture. I mean, sometimes we talk about it in terms of product values, just to describe some of the things we talk about from a product perspective. And these are just what we believe as ultimate truths of the world. And so for instance, like curiosity happens all the time and people are curious. Let's always remember that. And that's one core thing. The power of the community is better than the individual. We believe that when you collectively build tools for everybody else, it helps everybody else. So openness is important. We believe openness leads to creativity. Let's not create a platform. Let's not be a closed ecosystem. Let's be open because when people create tools, when you give the tools to people, people will do good things and new things will come about. And I think that's really important to us. These are just sort of examples. Like people want convenience and control 
over their entertainment experience. These are the sort of product principles that we sort of believe in. In terms of company values, we haven't gotten to that stage yet, kind of thinking about it and writing it down. I think the people ends up creating it. When I talk about work ethic and getting shit done and hire good people, but more importantly, like give them space. Like for instance, we have an unlimited vacation policy. Rarely do startups say things like that. But we say it because, hey, you hire good people that are responsible, they're just not going to like leave you hanging. And no one's abuses it, and that's important. We also have a perk where you can take six days off a year to do volunteer work. And that's sort of following sort of a 1% of your time every month can be used to do volunteer work. You know, we believe that it's not just about what you do here in the office. It's about making sure that we serve our community. So do we have any company values? Uh, you know, I think we do. We just don't, haven't written them down quite yet. I think everybody knows it through the way we operate as, as a team and, and making sure that everybody sort of recognizes that. You know, sometimes company values needs to come from within rather than being spelled out. No, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting approach. So let's also talk about another aspect of vision, and that's, that's leadership. As CEO, what does leadership mean to you? And what does it mean to be a strong leader in, in your eyes? There's different types of leaders. I've seen leaders that lead through action. I've seen lead, leaders that lead through setting the tone. To me, you know, I'd love to ask my team that, do you think I'm a leader? And let's see what they <laughs> say. Um, so that's, that's probably a question to ask them. But you what know, do you think your leadership style is? My leadership style is to lead through action is to literally, there are some people who bring people in and set the tone and set the strategy and then everybody sort of executes. I'm a guy that says, I'm just like you. If we grow to a hundred whatever person company, I am the janitor of the company. I am whatever the company needs. And to me, that's important. I'm an equal. There's no hierarchy in our organization. If someone needs help on the most simplistic thing, I will help you in that area. And I think that sort of audacity, I think that type of thinking is, is something that I personally have found is, is important as I've worked for other companies is that, you know, when you consider yourself an equal to everybody, you'll see the best out of them because there's no pride in my title. I tell this to everybody that comes in. Like, I don't care what, what title do you want? Like, it, you want to be the CEO? Like, I, you know, at the end of the day, like, to me, we're just a team of people that are just building, that we all move towards the same objective is to add more value and build greater things. And if you need help at a, whatever level, I'm here to help you. And hopefully people, I think our team appreciates that because if they say, hey, I need help here or, hey, let me help you get this done, don't worry about it. I will write this. Even the most smallest, minuscule thing, like it's amazing as if you're a small company, how sometimes the most medial tasks are the most important. Just for instance, people like, hey, can we get juice in the office? I'm like, I don't know how to get juice in the office. But if that's what we need, then I'm going to go figure out how to do it. Yeah. Some people say, oh, that's not what I do. You know, this, you know why don't you, you, know, you go do that? I'm the CEO. Like, I don't believe in that. It's just like, hey, man, like if you were working on important things, I'm going to work on important, I have important things to work on. But listen, I'll take care of it. Go do what you need to do. So I think that my, that's my leadership style is lead through action be a leader by showing them an example of how you do it. And that's kind of how both me and Tim have been operating. Sometimes you can hire a co-founder that doesn't code. Tim does product strategy. He meets with me. I mean, we have meetings up to 2 a.m. And yet he still codes. 
and he codes with the team. He knows every aspect of our product. And he said he'll always know all aspects of our product. And I think that's what makes a great leader. That's why I think Tim and I work so well together is because we both believe let's not hire people who want to delegate tasks. We have to have hire people who want to get who want to who love to roll up their sleeves and get the work done too. Great, great. No, I'm uh, that sounds terrific. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and 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 jump into Miso if if there was an opportunity. So, let's talk a little bit about metrics. I mean, I know every company has a core set of metrics that they look at on a regular basis to measure their success and whatnot. What metrics are you guys looking at in your business? No, I think there's there's the standard metrics. Like the most important metric to us is what we refer to as weekly active retained users. This is funny because no one ever talks about this publicly, but everybody talks about user growth. Right. They're like, oh, I have my 5 million users. How many actually are using it? Exactly. I was reading someone's article yesterday, and they were talking about, we grew our user base from 5 million users to 70 million users, from 500 million page views to 600 million page views. And I was thinking, I was like, wait a second. So you went from 5 million to 70. That's almost 12, 13x the number of users, but your page views went from 500 million to 600. That means no one's really using it. You're growing users that no one's ever using it. So even if you look at Foursquare, they talk about 5 million users. They never talk about usage. They never talk about how many people are actually using it. I'm sure I'm confident they are looking at this internally. They would be ridiculous if they weren't. Sure. For us, the number one metric we look at is weekly active retained users. So on a week-to-week base, if you signed up this week and you do not use it the next week, then you are not an active retained user. We didn't actively retain you after the first week. That means that we couldn't just deliver value to you in one week that you could use it again. Now, some people might not watch TV in, uh, after one week. Well, we'll cap that on a fall one week. But a lot of people may sign up for a service and then say, I don't get it, and they never use it again. Right. You know, and so we our number one metric is weekly pages. I mean, in terms of usage, you know, when I say active usage, we define it as engagement. Engagement being doing something within MISO. And there's different types of engagement. There's might be, hey, I just open up MISO. There might be the engagement where I engage, you know, I do something related to it, I check in, I like, I comment. That's what we define as sort of engagement. What are the biggest challenges that you're facing at MISO right now and how do you plan to solve them? I think our Biggest challenge right now is answering the larger question, what do 100 million people want when they watch TV on the second screen? If you have the answer to that, I would rather talk about that, but uh, (laughs) uh, I don't have the answer. And so that's something, how do we explore and try to work towards that answer? So that's the biggest challenge that we have is people love our product. We are growing at a good pace there's definitely interest in, in check-ins and, and the things they're working on. But, you know, for us, we always are thinking bigger. How do we go beyond that? How do we deliver more value? How do we create a better experience for you that derives more interesting experiences while you watch TV? So our challenge is to answer that question. And we, you know, we have ideas and theories, but uh, that's something that we're working towards. And how do we work towards them? Lots of things. One is just a lot of low-fidelity tests, talking to users, bringing them into our office, We have mock-ups. We're showing things. We're creating prototypes. A lot of things that we haven't even released publicly that are doing we're doing internally to understand whether people say this is cool. I would use this again and again and again. That's something that we're working towards as a team. So you know that's our challenge. We have ideas of how we're doing it. You know, and we'll see if we can get the answer to it sooner than later. What's one of the most important lessons you've learned in being in business for yourself, and how are you applying that in your role at Miso? 
I think the most important thing that I've learned in the past year is, is you have to hustle. Nothing comes to you naturally. You have to work at it in all aspects of this, from product execution to releasing product to hiring people to getting them to join your company to getting press to write about you to securing partnerships. You hustle, you hustle, you hustle. And it will never end, especially if you're starting your own company. Do not expect you have to wake up in the morning and you should be working all day until you feel satisfied. And usually, you know, we're not even 1% from our, where we want to be from a product perspective. I mean, you can envision what the second screen could be and it sounds awesome, but how do you make it happen? So you have to hustle and just work and keep stay focused and Bring good people in. That's probably the most important things is, is to me is hustle, bring good people in that can challenge you and help you realize the full potential of what the vision might look like. That's what we're still doing. I'm, to this day, I'm still working up to 2 a.m. and I love it. You know, you got to love it. You got to love the hustle. Yeah. I think that's the hard part is some people say they can hustle, but then they don't love it. But you got to wake up in the morning like, I love it. I, I love the fact that competition is there. I love the fact that I'm getting some no's here. I love the fact that people are saying this is a bad idea. I love, you know, you got to love that. It sort of sounds ridiculous, but that, that's got to keep you going. Absolutely. No, that's great advice. What is your marketing strategy at Miso? Are you basically, I know it's a social kind of thing, so there's sort of a built-in aspect to that. Are, are you doing anything else outside of that? Marketing to me is interesting for a consumer product. I think at the end of the day, you build a good product, the marketing works out in itself. I'll say, you know, our product is good. We, lo- we love it. I think there's a lot of flaws, but I think we still have a lot of work to do to, to build a better experience and, and make me so better. But I think our marketing strategy is build a good product, build a community of people that love it, and have them spread the word. All the things that we do from a marketing perspective is generally around community community involvement, kind of like Yelp elite type stuff, bringing meetups and so forth. But first and foremost, the marketing strategy is just build a good product. So last question here. What advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about starting their own business? I would say just start doing it. There's the talk and then there's the act of doing it. And you could be at your current job. When we started our company, Tim and I were currently at our job. And we started doing things on nights and weekends. And, you know, there's always a risk of I can't quit my job and quit it. So I, we understand that. And I don't, I don't think I would suggest that unless you were are super rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I would say if you want to start a company, then do it. If I, anybody I met said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a company, it's like, you know what? Do it. How can I help you? And then find people that want to help you. I'm saying here, I'm the type of person that's literally, they can email me at charmot at gomisa.com. Whatever I can do to help you, refine your idea, help you find people, help you think about how to make it happen. The first and first and foremost thing is don't talk, just start doing things because talk won't get you anywhere. That's great advice. So Shamrat, tell us how people can find you and Miso. You can contact me on Twitter at SNiogi, S-N-I-Y-O-G-I. You can also tweet at at GoMiso, G-O-M-I-S-O. Or if you want to play with our app, it's at GoMiso.com. You can download our iPhone, iPad, Android, or play on the web. We'd love to get your feedback. 
feedback is everything. You can either contact me directly at somrat at gomiso.com or there's tons of emails on our website and I guarantee we will get back to you. Great, fantastic. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk with us, uh, Shamrat, and uh, we wish you a profitable future. So do I. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Hutlinger and used with his permission. All other content on this show is copyright 2011 by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indiebizshow.com. That's www.indybizshow.com. Show.